Hi, I'm April. And I'm Steph. And you're listening to The Thirst. We're a podcast that looks at the latest in pop culture, including film, TV and music, as well as dissecting some very special topics of our choosing. You can find us online with Twitter at The Thirst, facebook.com forward slash The Thirst Pod. We're also over on Instagram at The Thirst Pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for The Thirst. We're also on Spotify. And you can also find us on Podbean with thethirst.podbean.com. And if you want to get in touch via email, you can do. It's thethirstpod at gmail.com. We've also got our blog where we share links and anything else we might mention, which is of interest. That is thethirstpod.wordpress.com. Uh, this is episode 47, I think. I've done no prep for 47, so well, the ball is fully in your court. Lucky for you, there is a shitload of trivia for 47. There isn't, but there is There is some. So here's my, okay, here's my thing. There is 47 Metres Down, which is a 2017 shark film starring Mandy Moore. Mandy Moore. For, is it sure. 47 Ronin? A 2013 film starring Keanu Reeves. Yeah, I know, that, I know of that one. Okay, I thought you would with uh, Keanu. And then here's some Star Trek trivia, which I don't think we've ever done Star Trek trivia before. So uh, never, no, go on. <clears throat> so Joe Minoski, a writer for Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, got other Star Trek writers on board with his enthusiasm for the number 47. As a result, 47 and its reverse 74, or its multiples, or combinations of 47, you can tell I got this off Wikipedia, occur in a large number of episodes of Star Trek and its spin-offs. So it's mentioned a lot, is a big part of the Star Trek universe. Who knew? That's actually like 300% more trivia than we usually have at this stage. So Also, I would say that it's a genuinely interesting fact yeah. as well. For, and it's been a while. I, mean, I have some birthdays. Do the birthdays, they're always fun. They're always the best bit. Okay, so celebrities who are currently aged 47. Pharrell Williams. I can't believe he's 47. So it looks about 12. Great. Same, same age as he's always been. Uh, Kate Beckinsale. Notorious lover of younger men, I back it. Hey, remember when she dated Pete Davis? I really do. I think of it often. That was wild. <laughs> Nas, Corey Taylor of of Slipknot, of fame. Slipknot fame. I went through a phase of thinking he was quite hot. Slash, still do a bit. He's all right, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, I probably would. Uh, Peter Andre. <laughs> wow. From two end, one end of the section <laughs> to the other there. Kristen Wiig, who's going to come up again in this show. James Marsden, who keeps appearing at the moment. Don't know why. Uh, Adam Scott. Your friend, don't my know my best friend. Your best friend, Rose McGowan, Neve Campbell, and Noel Fielding. Oh, okay, that's such a weird mix of people. Diverse list, not our usual caliber of list, but uh, we'll take it. Well, I don't, I don't know what you're saying about Peter Andre here, but uh... <laughs> do people outside of the UK know who Peter Andre? I, I don't is? even know. Let us know if you know who Peter Andre is. We do have a big Australian listenership, so I, sh- I assume they'll know. Yeah, isn't he? Austra- is he Australian? He is Australian. Did yes, he but... begin on Neighbours as well? I don't know. I bet it was on Home Away, wasn't he? I'll ask Vaughn. Ask Vaughn. And over to spokesperson in Sydney, Vaughn. We'll find out and let you all know. Great. Should we talk about some news? Sure, let's. Great start to the year, I would say, for me personally, mostly because I get I get to talk about this on the podcast, which um, I never need an excuse to talk about this individual in particular. But here we are anyway. So Ben Affleck and Anna de Armas have split up. Did we talk about their paparazzi-ness and presence last year at all? No, I don't I think we remember. did. I think the only time we've addressed Ben Affleck properly was the back tattoo, which was one of my favourite discussions we've had. So I think of that fondly, but I don't yeah. think he's come up that often since, mainly okay. because I am not a huge Ben Affleck fan. No, you're not, are you? So it, it just, I don't know. 
Didn't feel okay. like a two-way conversation. But right now, this feels like a very good two-way conversation to have about. Yeah, I I really enjoy how you've suddenly become like very invested and intrigued by this because it's just wonderful for me, a person who is continually um, on the lookout for Ben Affleck's presence. So he and Ananda Armas have split up 18th of January. It was announced that they had parted ways after almost a year of being together. They'd met at the end of 2019 during the filming of erotic thriller Deep Water, which is directed by Adrian Lin. It's due for release this year. Not even out yet. That's going to be awkward. Not even out yet. That's going to be awkward press tour, isn't it? Yeah. So they were then spotted together in Cuba during March of 2020, then took a trip to Costa Rica. And then after that, they went into quarantine together and then sort of became paparazzi favourites during the initial coronavirus wave in Los Angeles. So that's one side of things. Yeah, I was going to say my favourite thing about this is that that kind of made it sound like I've suddenly got really invested in Ben Affleck and Anna de Armas's relationship. But what yeah. I'm invested in is Ben Affleck's relationship with Dunkin' Donuts. Oh God, I can't believe we're going to talk about this. So they split up, obviously very sad, you know, two adults coming to the end of a relationship. Wish them both well. <laughs> I couldn't care less. <laughs> what, what can you say? I found the pairing intriguing. I always want good things for Ben Affleck and he seemed extremely happy during last year, despite the horrors of the world around him. So, you know, good for him. Regarding Dunking Donuts, so... Ben Affleck's love of Dunkin' Donuts is well documented, has been historically. It's not like a pandemic specific thing. If you spend a lot of time going back through paparazzi pictures of Ben Affleck. Well, this just sounds like you do. Well, no, I just, you know, look out for it. There's always a presence of Dunkin' Donuts. Just a brief sidebar, an important thing I wish to address to you. Have you ever been to a Dunkin' Donuts? Yes, but I mean, literally like once or may- maybe tops twice when I've been in America. Yeah, I was going to say, was that when you were in America? Yeah, so once when we went to New York, they, they had like a Dunkin' Donuts at the uh, airport when yep. we got to New York, and I'm pretty sure I've been in LA as well, because you just would, wouldn't you? When you're caught short and you need a donut and an iced coffee. Yeah, so Dunkin' Donuts... I, I believe they exist nationally across the US, but it is an extremely like Massachusetts thing, mm-hmm. a very Boston thing. Ben Affleck is a well-documented resident uh, child of Massachusetts. I did some research and I discovered that uh, Dunkin' Donuts itself was founded in Quincy, Massachusetts, which I believe is a suburb of Boston. Did you Wikipedia um, this today? The 50s. Yeah, of course I did. Okay. So Ben Affleck is always spotted with Dunkin' Donuts. Um, I myself have also been to Dunkin' Donuts when I was in Boston, as it was, and I was, I was very obsessed with it. It's great. Uh, who doesn't love I mean, this is pre-veganism, right? So you can't eat anything there now, but, you know. Donuts are great. Donuts are great. One of my favourite things. A good coffee, I suppose, you know. So the Dunkin' Donuts thing is just relevant, particularly post this breakup, because there were two fairly funny instances of Ben Affleck specifically with Duncan. That makes it sound like a person, like Ben Affleck and Duncan. Dunkies, yeah. Dunkies Donuts. Duncan. 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 His partner in crime, Duncan. That'd be a good dog name, wouldn't it? Duncan Donuts. <laughs> Ben's new love interest, Duncan. Duncan. Um, a few days after the split was announced on January the 23rd, Ben was spotted outside his house collecting packages and balancing Duncan Donuts takeout on top. This rapidly became a meme. There is an ongoing like memification of Ben Affleck, which intrigues me so much. This is the key thing for me, is just the fact that he is so memeable. And this isn't even the first time that he's become a meme being shot outside his house 
with no. a big Dunkin' Donuts order that he's trying to balance on top of mm. the rest of life's difficulties. This right, is like the because, third time that's happened. Yeah, because there was the incident on New Year's Eve, so at the end of last year, where he was spotted juggling Dunkin' Donuts takeout outside his house, whilst also wearing a Believe in Boston t-shirt. Um, just another brief tidbit of information about Ben Affleck is that he was spotted wearing a Bridge Nine Records t-shirt <laughs> not that long out. ago. This is like... For me, it's like the intersection of interest. Bridge Nine, B9 is a record label based in Boston, which put out a lot of like seminal hardcore records. So the fact that Ben Affleck was wearing this T-shirt like absolutely made me die. Anyway, neither here nor there. There was this picture on New Year's Eve where he's like really struggling to balance it. And it's just like the most easy meme ever. And with the incident on uh, January 23rd of him outside his house, I just think he knows what he's doing a lot of the time. Well, I just think... Why does he keep trying to... Like, why doesn't he get a carrier bag? And... Why is he doing this himself? He, yeah. Like, doesn't he have an assistant for this? Just needs a carrier bag. He always looks so sad. Yeah, I like sad Fleck. Physically pained, I would say. There's a really interesting piece I read on The Ringer by Josh Gondelman, and I believe I tweeted about it at the time but I really I'm going to link to it on our blog because it's just a very very interesting analysis of Ben Affleck as a celebrity Ben Affleck is a celebrity now and also sort of charts the evolution of Ben Affleck mm. and it's called the Nirvana of Ben Affleck and there's just one particular passage I want to read in it because I just found it so interesting the whole thing is just like like funny but then also like a genuine in sort of analysis of like the cult of celebrity and what we want from our celebrities. So Josh writes, Duncan as a brand harkened back to the Red Sox of the late 20th century, a scrappy, much maligned underdog that is actually worth millions and millions of dollars. In other words, Ben Affleck. The alignment between his persona and the Duncan brand is almost cosmic and seeing them merge feels like witnessing a man at peace with himself. We want our stars to be just like us, but ultimately we want them to be themselves even more. And I do think like... Ben Affleck has talked quite a lot about the sort of like burden of being famous and like how actually there's been a lot of instances in his past where he just sort of like either regrets sort of things or engagement with the press. Obviously, there was a very famous period of time where he was dating Jennifer Lopez and he appeared in the music video. There's obviously the his marriage to Jennifer Garner and then their subsequent split. She did a very famous interview where she talks about their marriage after they'd split up and she references that back tattoo and all of this stuff. And it's just like this and also Triple Frontier as well, where he is essentially playing himself. And it's just very interesting. I find him very, very interesting to sort of analyse and think about as a celebrity. And he's extremely intelligent. There's a Hollywood Reporter Awards chatter, I think it's called podcast where they interview actors over the course of the year but specifically this time of year they have interviewing people who are in films that are likely to get awards nominations blah 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 Um, and he did an episode of it recently which is really worth listening to because he's extremely intelligent and I think that he he often gets a bad rep for a number of reasons whether it's the tattoo (laughs) yeah whether it's the tattoo no whether it's like required or not but I don't know I just find it very interesting I just find it very funny that he just constantly pops up as this meme and I think he has peace with it and the whole thing with Under Armour just felt very paparazzi baity anyway because they would go out and they'd be very PDA heavy and I don't know I just feel like his evolution of his celebrity and how he utilizes it and how he plays around with it and his awareness of it I'm just like continually intrigued by well I for one am very impressed that I did like two lines of prep for this 
which basically said like does Ben Affleck have a lifetime card at Dunkin Donuts and then you've somehow morphed this into quite an intelligent conversation about the cult <laughs> of celebrity and Ben Affleck's career I thought we were just talking about donuts so I feel this is I'm impressed I think you you did well here. Thanks so much. Um, in response to your Dunkin' Donuts uh, lifetime card, they have come out and said that he does not have one. He just purchases them of his own accord. Like that's the least he could have as a lifetime card or some sort of membership. Yeah, there was the accusation last summer that because there was one particular walk where he and Anna de Armas were out and he was like pictured holding like an iced coffee cup <laughs> and someone basically said like, is that just Dunkin' Spawn Con? And they were like, no, it absolutely isn't. Like he just does this of his own accord. He's Boston through through can't believe you know so much about Ben Affleck it's uh I think I think this episode title needs to be like a serious analysis of Ben Affleck and Dunkin Donuts I like Ben Affleck I think he gets a bad rep no I think you're I think it's a very good defense and I think we're very sad for Anna de Armas and Ben Affleck but also really pleased about this ongoing romance between Ben Affleck and Mr Donuts and we wish them all the very best we do wish them the best from one weirdo to another, um, and I don't mean me and you. <laughs> hey. Well, not just me and you. I mean from Ben Affleck to Rob Pattinson. So this was something that just came up for us, actually. I think it the rumour mill kind of published this this morning. So uh, it's hot off the press. Apparently, rumour has it that Rob Pattinson is currently in talks to portray real-life serial killer H.H. Holmes in Martin Scorsese's The Devil in the White City. So the film's based on the novel of the same name by Eric Larson and details the concurrent events surrounding the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition and the truly heinous serial killer murders of H.H. Holmes. As you can tell, that is also from Wikipedia. So H.H. Holmes is also probably best known, or I remember him, for having the murder castle in Illinois, which was this bizarre building that he had renovated that had loads of rooms and passageways that led to nowhere and was just sort of like a weird Bluebeard's Castle-esque scary building. I think experts think that he might have murdered upward of 200 people. So an extremely prolific serial killer. So I think Leonardo DiCaprio was attached to this quite early on because he bought the film rights to the book back in 2010 and has been trying to produce the film for a while with Scorsese. So it looks like it's finally kind of might be might be getting off the ground. This is all very much rumour at this point. So, I mean, could mean absolutely nothing. But rumours are Rob Pattinson could be H.H. Holmes, not literally starring as H.H. Holmes. <laughs> I feel this is about time because we've seen... Rob Pattinson do lots of really weird things. So mm-hmm. serial killer seems like the natural progression for him. It's fully like natural evolution in my head, unfortunately, in a very strange way. It is, isn't it? I was trying to think of other serial killers he could play. And unfortunately, he is actually too good looking to play most of them because they are but ugly as a rule. Mm. So H.H. H. Holmes is quite a good choice because he's very, you know, I think Rob Pattinson pulls off the top hat and the gentlemanly look. However, when I was thinking about it, one thing did appear that I thought was good for name only. So there was an angel of death called, a real life angel of death called Charles Edmund Cullen. (laughs) Personally, (laughs) I think that's too close to Edward Cullen. And I therefore think that maybe he should also play this person who murdered elderly people in New Jersey (laughs) just because of the namesake. I just think that 
he if if this happens he is gonna go like full throttle and i feel like we talk all the time about like we love him most when he's at his weirdest yeah and you just know that he wouldn't take like a pedestrian approach to this imagine he just lived his life as a i mean what are you gonna do to get in character like outside of being on a film set you can't just walk around acting like a serial killer imagine the press tour for this though where he talks about his method of like getting into character just dons like a rides up on a penny farthing with like a top hat and it's like good evening (laughs) that alone would sustain me through this year actually just the knowledge that like that will be something that we'll get to encounter at some stage i don't know i i just i saw this news and i was like wow not much of a stretch that he would play someone like this because i just think that he's absolutely batshit and a bit strange this could not even be true but i just felt like it was worth addressing because it's such a good idea and at some point if it does if it doesn't happen now it has to happen at some point because i think he would make a good serial killer on film sorry rob i'm gonna find it extremely crushing if that doesn't happen it's funny that you mention how like serial killers and good looks because i was reminded yesterday about the existence of the ted bundy zach efron film (laughs) um which we discussed at length in a previous episode of this podcast whenever it came out 2018 yeah 2019 and how that like just didn't function no because Zac Efron is like way too good looking and I know that like where Ted Bundy was concerned it was always like oh but he was too handsome to be a serial killer but that's bollocks really the key really was that Ted Bundy didn't look like all other serial killers who for the most part are quite bizarre like quite bizarre in terms of behavior and do look pretty heinous like you look at Richard Ramirez like absolutely vile to look at and be around Ted Bundy kind of normal normal looking bloke but in serial killer terms that kind of translates to like absolute hottie so he ain't that hot guys he's just quite normal serial killer but make it hot um yeah i'm really looking forward to seeing if this actually plays out i mean i do like the idea of patterns and working with martin scorsese There's yeah something me quite too cool about that i would like to see this and like scorsese taking on like this period piece i think would be nice like an interesting thing as well so i don't know i hope it is real i hope it does come to fruition at some stage in the future Let's all cast a spell and hope it comes to be. Um, from one person we find very handsome to another. These segues are so great today, loving it. I would say they are seamless. Some shocking news happened this week. Big news. Which personally rocked me and derailed my entire day, I will say. <laughs> Some paparazzi pictures uh, emerged from the Los Angeles set of Ambulance, which is a film which is being directed by Michael Bay. Everyone's favourite director. Everyone's favourite director? Not. Um, it's based on a 2005 Danish film. It's a sort of US remake. Stars Jake Gyllenhaal and Yaya Abdul-Mahatin, as well as um, Isa Gonzalez. So the, the main thing, obviously, I give a shit about is that it's got Jake Gyllenhaal in. I don't care about Michael Bay's films. Sorry. Apart from maybe Bad Boys. Okay, I rescind that that bad boys is pretty good so normally i wouldn't care jake gyllenhaal is involved in this so obviously i have to care like a little bit but the the reason this piece of information was so distressing to me is not the announcement of the film which actually happened in november and i've been ever so skeptical since but it's that jake gyllenhaal has cut his hair specifically for this film now if you know anything about me and you if you have been aware of my social media presence at any stage throughout the last year i would say is that you will notice that I've had a deep preoccupation with Jake John Hall's hair and the fact that he had been somehow and seemingly growing it out Lovely like many long. people during the pandemic. When he did the handstand challenge, he had a nice 
hair like his hair was very long it was in a ponytail and i just you know long hair jake gyllenhaal is a gift that should be protected at all costs unless you are michael bay who apparently sanctioned this haircut and i just i'm so upset about it <sighs> and i just feel very personally attacked i mean it doesn't surprise me that it happens on a michael bay set ruins everything really it's not even like it's for a good film like if it was for a good film i would genuinely be like do you know what fine and it's not to say that he doesn't look extremely handsome with short hair it's just it's not the long hair is it it's just not what you want no not what i wanted at this current juncture um obviously jake john hall is he's handsome regardless but it's just a bit distressing to see and then it makes me have to dwell upon the fact that i'm actually gonna have to watch this film are we gonna have to go to the cinema to see this yeah unfortunately we are i'm I'm very sorry actually yeah yeah abdul mateen is yeah extremely handsome and like extremely isa gonzalez you know great (laughs) can i just read you the premise of this film though yes i don't think i've even oh actually i sort of loosely yeah i loosely know the premise but please read it because so it's two thieves rob an ambulance occupied by a paramedic and a patient in critical condition so in my head it just feels a bit like speed yes with an ambulance yes i think that's exactly what it is and the paparazzi pictures themselves are of Jake and Isa on the back of an ambulance that's <laughs> driving and Jake has a machine gun. So there we go. Like, set the tone. Just great. I think one of my favourite things is when I first read this premise, my brain must have scrambled it upon reading. And I thought it said, two thieves who rob an ambulance, occupied by a paramedic. <laughs> well, I missed the paramedic bit and basically thought it said, two thieves who rob an ambulance, occupied by a patient in critical condition. And that Isa Gonzalez was the patient in critical condition. So in my head, it was a film with these two thieves. And then Isa Gonzalez was literally just going to lie down unconscious for the entire film. And her starring role would be like, she'd have no lines and would just be lying down, which is my ideal film role, personally. I really hope that it's not just speed with an ambulance. I just, this feels like such a weird, like, (laughs) career setback. Like, I don't know. Jake, what are you doing? Yeah, I don't know why he's got all Prince of Persia on us again. Oh, please don't. Please do not mention Prince of Persia. (laughs) Anyway, can't wait to talk about this on the podcast in future when it happens. Yeah, so, I mean, I'll share the pictures. I just find them personally offensive. hes It's not like he's ugly or anything. It's just that I was really enjoying the long hair and I was really hoping it was going to stay forever, but apparently not. Could have at least asked permission. One final thing before we talk about some things we've been watching and enjoying recently. Something we felt we needed to acknowledge don't really want to acknowledge it but have to do it anyway because it's been a funny few weeks slash months specifically all of the chatter around army hammer lots going on in army hammer's world right now really busy 2021 for him we don't want to go into the horrific details and the the stories that lots of victims lots of victims have been coming out and talking very bravely about all we will say is that we are obviously fully aware of it and have read all of the details to death, are both equally horrified and second, and there's going to be no more Army Hammer chat on this podcast. And that's kind of it, really. There's nothing else to say other than it's a deeply uncomfortable situation for everyone to be in, and you just don't know what people are like behind closed doors. You don't know what people are like at all. And yeah, that's kind of it, isn't it? There's nothing else that we want to say. We just felt we had to acknowledge it because we've obviously 
talked about Army Hammer in particular and his career quite a lot. He's been involved in quite a lot of films that we've enjoyed and not enjoyed. In the past, he's been a topic of fun for us. We've had Mm -hmm. a good laugh talking about him. And yeah, we just want to acknowledge that obviously it's it's pretty grim stuff. Um, We hope it's dealt with, well, seriously and properly and that we won't be watching his films or engaging with his celebrity anymore really we'd sort of made the decision that we weren't going to sit and unpack it at length because we didn't really have any nuanced take that anyone else wasn't already having on it and but we just wanted to mention it because we had been asked about it multiple times um because we have as steph so eloquently said talked about him at length in the past so we wanted to just acknowledge that we are aware you know we're not not mentioning it because we don't care it's just that we don't really have anything to add to the conversation um there are plenty of other outlets that have written written about it written about the seriousness of it so we encourage you to seek those out yourself to that end as well there's just something else on the similar depressing tract is that we are obviously aware of the fka twigs lawsuit towards her ex-partner Shia LaBeouf that again happened at the end of last year and we didn't want to dedicate a huge amount of airtime to that but we did feel that it was important to acknowledge that we are aware of it we obviously support twigs um, and other victims and survivors that in particular was particularly horrible and distressing to read um, the New York Times piece she's also been on Louis Theroux's podcast mm. last week which if you are interested in it then it's a very sensitively handled discussion with yeah. her directly fantastic chat but again you know we've talked about Shara in the past myself in particular very recently as well you know during 2020 so again I just wanted to acknowledge that and we will be giving no more airtime to either of them going forward okay first on our list for dissection is Wonder Woman 1984 so as I'm sure many people will know Wonder Woman 1984 is a film based on the DC Comics character Wonder Woman and it's the sequel to the 2017 film Wonder Woman and the ninth installment in the DC Extended Universe so both Wonder Woman films were directed by Patty Jenkins it stars Gal Gadot as Diane Prince slash Wonder Woman, alongside Chris Pine, Kristen Wiig, Pedro Pascal, Robin Wright and Connie Nielsen. So the premise of this film is that Diana lives quietly among mortals in the vibrant, sleek 1980s, an era of excess driven by the pursuit of having it all. Though she's come into her full powers, she maintains a low profile by curating ancient artefacts and only performing heroic acts incognito. But soon, Diana will have to muster all of her strength, wisdom and courage as she finds herself squaring off against Maxwell Lord and the Cheetah, a villainess who possesses superhuman strength and agility. So this second Wonder Woman film was originally announced for release on the 13th of December 2019. uh, And then it was delayed multiple times due, due to, unsurprisingly, the COVID situation and cinemas being closed. So bumped back lots and lots of times and then it finally premiered in US theatres on the 25th of December. Got no idea what the stats are like for viewership over in the US in the cinema for this. I imagine they aren't fantastic. It was also made available for digital streaming at the same time on HBO Max. Elsewhere, like in the UK here, the film was theatrically released on the 16th of December, which gave it a whole 10 days before everyone went into national lockdown. I I think I know maybe two people who got to catch it in the cinema during that time. So that's my little brief intro. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you found this film? Because I think we both went in with low expectations because we had heard 
uh, a lot of chatter about it and people weren't loving it. I think we, we both went in with fairly measured expectations is what I will say to begin with. Yeah, definitely. So I think that the release of this really, I think, affects the my expectations for it. So I think initially the trailer for it got me a bit pumped, 80s, you know, I'm not adverse to the nostalgia driving, you know, content for the AC you know big stranger things fans over here so it's always interesting to me when something decides to do kind of a throwback to that particular era mm. so that initial teaser trailer that came out we were kind of both pretty excited i think the cast you know like i really like pedro pascal i'm a big Kristen and wig fan mm-hmm. so i was like interested we both did enjoy wonder woman when yeah, it came definitely. out i was surprised by it i enjoyed it a lot more than i thought i would it definitely had sort of surprised me a lot i don't particularly care about the dceu beyond sort of like an enjoyment of Batman historically so I don't, I'm not as, as invested in that as I am in the MCU for example so I'd enjoyed Wonder Woman in 2017 I enjoyed the take on that particular character I will say that I don't have any particular investment in Wonder Woman at all really never really watched the TV show as a kid you know haven't read the comics and everything so this particular rendering of the character is pretty much my sole engagement with it so when it was released online in the states there'd been this sort of flurry of backlash against it critically there had been some reviews really praising it so then when the embargo lifted and there'd been a lot of further critics had seen it and it was sort of largely panned Mm -hmm. it was very interesting sort of a lot of discourse going around online about that about the way that studios you know target particular outlets to try and get positive praise and i know that the production of it had been pretty fraught i think to Towards the end, there are a lot of interesting interviews that you can read with Patty Jenkins, where she talks about the struggle of producing a big studio film like this, which are worth seeking out if you're interested. So I think subsequently, because of the critical backlash to it, and sort of basically saying that it wasn't particularly good, my interest sort of plummeted. I don't think either of us were even going to bother watching it. But then when it became apparent that actually, sort of, you know, entering 2021, where the release schedule isn't particularly full at the moment we still can't go to the cinema yet in the uk because we are back into lockdown and probably will be for the foreseeable future so when things are slim on the ground we made the decision that we would cover it purely out of intrigue i think i thought it i thought it could be a moment of levity as well i thought i just want it to be fun really yeah and i think you know whenever i watch these types of films you know like superhero blockbuster type things my expectations are sort of slightly different to something else um just because i do think you have to take the content of them and the narrative and everything with a bit of a pinch of salt Mm -hmm. um but i just as bad as I thought it was going to be, I don't think I was fully prepared for truly how bad it is. Yeah, like you, I I quite simply just wanted this film to be... All it needed to deliver was fun, really. Yeah. Just a couple of hours of good fun. It doesn't need to, you know, offer anything too deep for me personally. It can be superficial fun. can be 80s sort of, yeah, nostalgia, saturated fun. Great. But this was truly very, very boring and also quite problematic. So it's just extremely naff. Like, it's just really yeah. not good. It's it, it's too long. It's two and a half hours long. That is so long. I cannot believe how long it is. I'm not adverse to long films at all. I think when they are, there are some directors who utilise an extended length of a film particularly well. And if you've got a good narrative structure, then it can work. But for something like this, 
it just felt tedious and I just vividly remember there was a point where we were both checking how long we had left and it was like 30 minutes at one stage and it just felt like this feat of endurance a complete slog I would say that like the first hour of it is like fine Mm-hmm. you're sort of riding that wave of it being fun you're being introduced to these new characters you are sort of caught up in the like oh it's 80s and like look at how 80s like you know that outfit is and you know oh they're doing they playing that computer game or they're like wearing that brand that was yeah. popular at that particular time and that's like fine to a point still feels a bit shit but yeah yeah like it's but it's like bearable yeah and then it there's a point where it just twists and it just becomes like complete and utter nonsense. So much of the plot for me was unexplained. I think we both at one stage were reading the Wikipedia page to just like try and go like, what is going on? Yeah, I felt quite bad because I almost feel like I shouldn't be reviewing it because I paid attention for the first hour and then got so bored and confused that I just basically browsed Twitter for ages. So... I'm not even sure how to address it in a coherent way, really, because as you say, like, the first film was a lot of fun, but also was very successful at illustrating, like, the gravity of its historical setting, like, in World War II. And then this one begins, as you say, like, back to the future, all leggings and bright colours, and then at some point tries to chuck in the nuclear arms race. And, like, the weight of that situation... It's so weirdly balanced and also it doesn't feel like a weighty situation at all. It is no. tonally so weird. It is really weird and I don't really understand the motivation for setting it in this particular time period. No, me neither. Like, other than the aesthetic of it, it feels like it really hinges on, like, being able to utilise the politics of that particular period. Mm-hmm. So it is set during the Cold War and it's got this sort of, like, you know, Gordon Gecko Wall Street-esque narrative of like you know like oh in order to be successful you must be really rich and everyone could be successful and that's what like Maxwell Lord mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. Pedro Pascal's character and and also I think it's interesting if you look at him through the lens of like the Trump administration because he is very much like a sort of trying to be like a self-made man well, he's like, basically Trump-esque. got the Trump hairstyle yeah hasn't he? it's very yeah it's like the art of the deal era Trump-esque aesthetic but I just think that like, the political landscape of superhero films it often feels very messy mm-hmm. because, you know, there's so much going on there when you get into, like, you know, talking about arms and, you know, pitting different countries mm-hmm. against each other and, like, intervening. And you could get into the entire narrative of, like, what that says about, like, America Absolute and their involvement mess. in the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like, that's something you could completely unpack. And very intelligent people I know have done that you know, far better than I ever could. But this feels so particularly messy. Parts of it just felt so egregious. I don't want to get into, like, the strangeness of Gal Gadot as a person and her own personal history, but there was a point in that this That does where... come into it a bit, though, as well, doesn't it? It feels very awkward where her personal life outside of this character just sits in a very uneasy way with their decision to move over to the Middle East. <laughs> There's lots in there about stolen land and the Middle mm-hmm. East. And I was watching this alongside T, who doesn't really have any investment in, hasn't seen the first Wonder Woman, was just sort of sat reading whilst I was watching this. And at one point they were just like, isn't it a bit weird that 
Gal Gadot is involved in this plot line. And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, it is. And I think if you unpack that too much, the whole film falls apart. And that was, for me, was the problem, is that, like, that twist in particular, the minute they fly to Cairo and then that entire, like, the nu- the nuclear stuff turns in and the Reagan-era politics, the, the guy who's supposed to be the president, is he Reagan? Don't really know, isn't really talked about. All of that just... It, it sort of takes this like mysticism of this like stone and all of the strange supernatural element whilst also trying to juggle like the 80s era political landscape yeah. in a way that just like doesn't work. And I think the only reason I stayed for the entire runtime was like Pedro Pascal is doing like an absolute balls to the wall, Nicolas Cage esque preposterous performance. Yeah, yeah. And he's like fun, but it just felt. A mess and i think that when you reduce the entire thing down to like well barbara minerva's motive seems to be that she's like extremely jealous of diana who she could have been friends with because they were friends in the beginning but all she really wants is to be able to walk in heels and be she just hot. wants to be noticed april she thinks wearing <sighs> heels will make her be less invisible it's just mad she and shouldn't then... be made to feel this way and it's driving her to villainy <laughs> and then like maxwell lord's sort of narrative is that like oh well, he had a crap childhood he grew up up in the poor background outside the US he's an immigrant so like he's sort of done this like evil stuff in the pursuit of happiness but obviously mm-hmm. it's backfired it's just a mess it's just such a mess and I I'm just baffled I'm so baffled by it like I just I've thought about it all week since we watched it and I was really hoping that like the pieces would slot into pace like I've read quite a few you know articles about it I've listened to a couple of podcasts where they analyze it and I just it just feels like absolute style over substance and so much of what was going on was unexplained and I cannot even be bothered to get into the whole thought process behind trying to bring back Steve Trevor because Chris Pine and Gal Gadot had really good chemistry in the first film and I was really surprised because I like Chris Pine but he wasn't anyone I particularly cared about a great deal but I was really impressed by him in that film and you completely are persuaded by the fact that like Diana would fall in love with this person and like be fully obsessed and besotted for the rest of her life and then obviously he tragically dies in the first wonder woman and yet he's in this second film and it's just not really explained no it's i mean this was another thing that i did i mean aside from what you've the hugely problematic elements that you've mentioned already like this film really undoes a lot of the good work that the first film does in terms of um yeah those two characters and their relationship and also diana's empowerment like i find i mean i find the relationship between diana and steve trevor really hard to handle in this film one because as you say i i really like the chemistry between these two actors so actually when they become romantically involved in the first film i did kind of fall for it although initially i was kind of like I don't need them to become romantic together. I don't need them to be an item. But, you know, the chemistry is there, so I'm along for the ride. This second one, A, the chemistry is completely gone between them. It's flat. (laughs) A large part of this film, yeah, despite this huge politically, well, just a huge political backdrop, a lot of this film is so focused on Diana's love for Steve, in which there is no chemistry and he just magically appears again. She's got so much other shit going on, you know. I just, I don't know, I just found that quite baffling as well. And he does just appear and then disappear again. So his entire character, there's just like almost no point in him being there. He serves as only some sort of weird distraction 
for a bit of time and then I just didn't buy any of that at all I found it so strange so much of Diana's personality in this film apparently just hinges on the fact that she's unlucky in love because Steve Trevor has died and and she's never gonna find anyone else again so she's single forever so it's 1984 he died in what 1917 in the first film so she's existed as a woman in the peak of her prime or whatever like she doesn't like Gal Gadot yeah, looking like Gal Gadot for like, what, 60, 70 years. She's not had a boyfriend since. She's pining for Steve Trevor. And then he turns up and there's just like absolutely no chemistry. She's basically like, oh, hi, nice to see you. He's not explained at all. Well, you had to go back and tell me because I was like, where has he come from? And then yeah. you told me that she'd wished on this. I mean, this is getting a bit, I won't go into it too much in terms of spoilerific things, but you know, the reason behind it happening. It's not abundantly clear and also... So then the film descends into and tea pointed this out, which made me absolutely die. It was just the fact that like it just becomes this like Steve Trevor discovers things about the modern world. And, oh like, my god, I... there was so much of that. Steve Trevor on an elevator. Steve Trevor looking at cars. That's sort of like quite funny in the grand scheme of like, well, he's from nineteen seventeen, he's in the eighties. Oh, That's quite a big period of time. Technological advances, like Yeah, but you can just watch like Back to the Future. That feels a bit old anyway. In yeah. terms of, I feel like a million other films have done that. And bar their outfits, because they're both extremely beautiful people with nice outfits in this film, I just felt like they were both extremely flat and 2D. And all of the, the good work that they'd done in the first film was kind of, I don't know, really fleshing out Diana's character as well and her her backstory and her time, you know, leaving home and wanting to go back to being reunited with her people and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, there's just none of it there. It's just interesting is that it does completely trounce the legacy of the first film. And, and like you said, it completely converts Diana from this like independent person that comes from this culture of like strong female beings. In this film, she's a strong female because she can wear heels whilst working at the Smithsonian. That is basically it. Like, wow, you look so cool and stylish whilst working in a museum. You've got brains and looks. It's so a mess. The pacing's all over the place. I don't like I don't know why we spend five hundred years at the Smithsonian and then like two seconds with some action. Because I would expect some level of action in a superhero film. It's the last sort of like twenty minutes to this half cheetah, an hour. This cheetah, cheetah thing literally appears at the last second. Yeah, the thing about that is just that's again what? completely under underutilized and underexplained. Like cheetah, based on my research, is like a fairly seminal character in the Wonder Woman canon. Literally lasts fifteen seconds, and it's like the last fifteen minutes is that it suddenly turns up again. Feels like a character that you could have lost Barb's character. I keep calling her Barb, even though she's not called Barb in this, but it's Barbara and it just feels like Stranger Things Barb. Like, you just, again, you could have cut her out of the film altogether and just had Maxwell Lord. I just don't get it. I I really don't. And do you know what my biggest gripe about this film is? Uh, There are so many things, please tell me. It's that Pedro Pascal isn't even hot. I know! What's that about? There was such a bout of hysteria at the end of last year with everyone having this strange Pedro Pascal discovery because he took his helmet finally off in The Mandalorian. (laughs) And I had to sit there and be like, guys, narcos, like, where have you been? And I had to tolerate all of it on on the understanding that like, oh, okay, well, maybe he is actually hot in Wonder Woman. Everyone's just suddenly had this like flurry of like, oh, okay, cool, Pedro Pascal. But he's not even hot. I think people just truly lost their minds because they were so bored and offended by this film. I just don't think it's even, it's just not even fun. 
it's not fun. It did not entertain me. It wasn't silly. F- I can like I can accept silly fun. I really can. All of the fun parts were truly in the trailer and the teaser trailer for me. Two things though, actually, that I do want to address because I do think around the time that I started browsing Twitter instead of watching the screen was around the same time that I started fully losing it and just laughing at everything. And Wes and I were just crying the whole time. The first thing is that the dream stone in the film is in fact a knob stone and looks like a vibrator. It looks like a rampant rabbit. So if you haven't seen this film yet, or you have, go back and look at that image. That is exactly what it looks like. So every time Diana's picking up this flipping stone and caressing it, I was absolutely sent. And also Wesley, I'll give Wesley full credit for this because it wasn't me. Halfway through, he just barked at the screen that Steve Trevor looked exactly like the lead character in Team America. And I now just cannot unsee it. The whole time I was just trying to draw parallels because actually they're kind of similar in uh, in tone as well. <laughs> I think that you could watch Wonder Woman 1984 and Team America back to back. Yes. And the plots are very similar. Tonally, they're the same. One is very tongue in cheek and one isn't. Yeah, one of them is a genuine satire of United States involvement in Middle East. <laughs> And one thinks it's like really serious and like, you know, if you wish good stuff, then good stuff will happen. God, I just can't, I can't tolerate talking about this film any longer. Can we move on? I think it's safe to say that we did not enjoy this. I would, if you want to watch it, then, you know, by all means, do send us your thoughts and feelings. But like, it had been such a long time since I'd watched something that was this embarrassingly bad. And I like actively enjoy watching like what I would call trash. So, well, I think it truly says something that I really panned Venom, which mm-hmm. a lot of people enjoyed, but I really panned it and did not think that was a good film. But I would say that is much better than this film because at least I wasn't bored in that film and it wasn't problematic. I just didn't think it was very good, but I would rather watch Venom than watch this film again. The thing with Venom is that I think it knows that it's shit and silly and it leans into it. This thinks it's like really serious and it isn't. No. So even I would watch Venom again and I have like absolutely no interest in watching Venom again. So let's just move on. I don't know what happened, Patty Jenkins. I'm going to put it down to Studio Bigwigs telling you that you have to do these things and cut out this and put in this. And I'm just going to, I'm going to think that because I just don't want to think of what the alternative is. I don't know. So from one woman to another, eh? Sorry, I'd been thinking about that segue the entire time when we were talking about Wonder Woman. So something else that we were actually looking forward to as opposed to like not at all is a Promising Young Woman. So it's written, produced and directed by Emerald Fennell in her feature directorial debut based on a script she wrote in 2017, which appeared on the 2018 uh, script Blacklist. Margot Robbie serves as producer um, through her Lucky Chap Entertainment Company. Emerald Fennell is currently in The Crown as Camilla Parker Bowles. I don't watch The Crown, though, so I know her best as being the showrunner of season two of Killing Eve. The film had its world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival this time last year and was theatrically released in the States on December 25th, 2020. It has a video on demand release in January, so only a few weeks ago on the 15th. And I think it has a scheduled UK release of 
12th of February, which was supposed to be a cinematic release, as in in theatres, which is currently up in the air because we are 100% not going to be back in cinemas in 12 days here in the UK. So the film stars Carrie Mulligan as Cassie Thomas, with a great cast including Bo Burnham, Alison Brie, Clancy Brown, Jennifer Coolidge, Laverne Cox and Connie Brett, with other recognisable Hollywood heartthrobs Chris Lowell, Adam Brody, Max Greenfield, Christopher Mintz-Plass. The title itself is a reference to Brock Turner, who's a Stanford University student who was convicted of sexual assault in 2016. Despite his conviction, he was referred to by some as a promising young man. So the sort of it's hard to describe this film without getting too spoilery, I suppose. Yeah. And there are a number of synopses which I found online, but the one I found that was like simultaneously baffling but does sort of give a good overview of the film is Nothing in Cassie's life is what it appears to be. She's wickedly smart, tantalisingly cunning, and she's living a secret double life by night. Now an unexpected encounter is about to give Cassie a chance to right the wrongs from the past. So it's safe to say that this film has been quite polarising, especially given the premise and the, indeed the outcome of what happens in the film. I do think that there will be a lot of really irritating discourse online. I've already seen quite a lot of it uh, to this point, including some very lazy comparisons to Joker. All right, mates. <laughs> Come on, lads. So what did you think of the film? What were your expectations in advance of it? Um, it's something that I think we've sort of, when we came to do our um, what we were looking forward to in 2020 sort of, films thing last year it was both top of our list it was obviously supposed to be released in april last year yeah we've waited a long time for it yeah but it's just been progressively bumped and then has sort of just sort of appeared now at this stage so yeah what were your expectations and what did you think of the film off the bat should we do a spoiler warning or what are we saying i'm gonna keep it spoiler free actually which not just because a lot of people we know in the uk in particular haven't seen it but also because i think the film really benefits from not not having a lot of if you don't know a lot about it in the first place not having a lot of context don't read up about it a lot beforehand just go and watch it so yeah that's what I would say I was really looking forward to it I definitely went in as I think you're expected to went into this film with an expectation or an idea of what would happen that it would be a kind of a revenge comedy per se or a dark comedy about a woman seeking revenge on the people that have wronged her or the men that have wronged her in particular. And it is coming out of the film. It is very different to that in a lot of ways. I find it quite hard to dissect my feelings about it, especially without spoiling the details, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a very good film, but it makes you feel, I went, I came out of it feeling very bad, but not because it was bad. Mm. It deliberately makes you feel fairly awful, I would say. Um, It's certainly a film that toys with your expectations, your expectations of this kind of narrative, which I really enjoy. So, I mean, on some superficial levels, you have the deliberate casting of characters, men in particular, who have very kind of iconic, good or funny boy roles. So again, I don't want to sort of I won't say who exactly, but it's deliberately subverting the type of men that we've seen on screen or rather deliberately subverting the um, characters that these actors usually play. So you're kind of watching it and thinking like, oh, yeah, this is all very good and very clever. That's grand. Yeah, I found it really interesting that it's a film that takes these devices that would traditionally make you feel one way and it very deliberately twists it into an opposite feeling so I think there's a sense of catharsis that you expect with a revenge film that you will not necessarily get with this film 
And that's all I want to say without giving it away. And I, I enjoyed it for that fact, but I can understand that some people might find that really frustrating. I don't know. I thought it was very effective is what I will say. I really enjoyed that it's a revenge story centered around friendship and grief in particular. So it centers on a character who wants revenge for someone else. And she feels a lot of survivor remorse and she's putting herself in dangerous situations because she feels like she needs to be punished because she wasn't able to help her friend who experienced something horrific. So it's actually a film that's more about kind of grief and guilt than it is about kind of toxic masculinity and getting some sort of cathartic revenge, you know, getting revenge on these people and managing to fuck them up and feeling really good about it afterwards. I feel like it's a film that does really benefit from not yeah, not hearing a lot about it to begin with. <laughs> it is strange, isn't it? Because we both wanted to talk about it and acknowledge it on the podcast because we had been looking forward to it so much. And then I think it became really apparent as we were watching it that actually the best thing that we'd done for ourselves is managed to avoid reading. <laughs> I hadn't read and I mean, bar having seen the kind of teaser trailery thing, which again, I think doesn't give too much away in terms of what the film is actually about and what actually happens. So some people might find that marketing a bit deceptive. Mm-hmm. Again, I quite like it because I feel like trailers give so much away nowadays that I went in with an idea of what this film was going to be about. And then as a result, had there were some really shocking moments for me. Yeah, I do think that one of the things that I'd written down about it is I do find the way it's been marketed to be very, very interesting. And a lot mm. of the responses that I had personally read, like on Letterboxd, for example, mm. cited this as being something that is sort of like given one expectation that mm-hmm. isn't necessarily fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily think that's particularly a criticism or detract from the power of the film but it is very interesting having now seen it to go back and look at the way that it's marketed because I think you are expect you go in with one idea of what you think it's going to be like that and it doesn't necessarily live up to that I don't think that's a bad thing but I do think that is something that's worth addressing I haven't seen many recent films that do that I think Wes watched it at the same time and he came out saying like he felt really quite frustrated and then I think he said unfulfilled and I I was like oh so you didn't like it and he was like no I thought it was really good but it's left me feeling (laughs) really frustrated and you know it's 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 very there are no mistakes with this film in terms of how it makes you feel and it's just really interesting that there are key moments that you kind of I don't know my gut instinct is that the film is leading you to feel a very particular way and the opposite kind of happens and it's kind of a weird sickening feeling in a way does that make sense no it does make sense perfectly it is funny isn't it because I do understand where he was coming from with regards to that feeling frustrated Mm. about it I think it purposefully sets you up for that to be honest yeah absolutely it feels all very deliberate doesn't it yeah and I think the marketing is definitely involved in that I think it's interesting that you mention this sort of underlying track of Cassie's behavior being sort of an attempt to assuage her guilt and sort of making her feel like she's actively doing something to sort of counteract Mm. all these big feelings of grief and trauma Mm. that she's sort of been going through there have been lots of interesting things I've now read since Mm -hmm. that talk about this sort of survivor's guilt and the burden of trauma and I'll link Mm. to some of those when I do the blog for the podcast because there's a couple in particular there's one on that was appeared on Elle by Candice Frederick which I think was a really powerful read actually immediately after having watched it Mm -hmm. 
It's interesting to think about the timing of this because if you look back over 2020, one thing Mm. we were gifted with last year was, of course, Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You. And I do think they make interesting companion pieces. Mm. And it's something I have thought about a lot in the weeks since we've watched it. And there was a very good piece for Vulture, which Alison Wilmore wrote, which sort of talks about the two comparatively, which I think, again, is worth reading. I was just thinking about that a lot, actually, about how Mm. they both have sort of very similar themes, but with sort of varying different outcomes and it's funny to think actually if this film had come out in April last year they would have been released at very similar times and I wonder actually if they had come out at the same time what the dialogue would have been between two of them I would have been really interested to yeah experience that having had both fresh in my mind that was something I've sort of been thinking a lot about I do think it's it's funny how you mentioned that you know the lack of catharsis Mm -hmm. that was something that I have dwelled upon a lot since it's really playing on those tropes of a kind of revenge female-led revenge film yeah and I do think that that is purposeful oh absolutely I don't think anything in this film was an accident no not at all and I do enjoy the weaponization of particular actors as well again there's a really good piece for The Ringer by Carrie Whitmer which I enjoyed which was talking specifically about that and I think Mm -hmm. that's very clever in terms of its casting I have spent the last week ruminating over it because I was very overwhelmed watching it at the time Mm -hmm. it did feel like the tension in it is so particularly highly strung yeah and I did when it came to the end I did feel like physically unwell and felt quite overwhelmed by it and then I've done a lot of reading since and it's definitely not detracted from my enjoyment of it but I do understand how given the topic given the things that it addresses given the things that happen in it I sort of it's very interesting to understand how you can get like really really full-on praise for it and then I do completely understand why someone might not like it it is a film of extremes in all ways I think and the reaction it was always going to reflect that too it's it's such a difficult topic as well to unpick and I do think as well that it's sort of it's aesthetic is particularly in line with like that kind of I really hate this term but it is also the only way Mm -hmm. I can kind of think to describe it that sort of like irritating like girl boss school of feminism yeah yeah very instagrammy like extremely bright it's very bright you've got that kind of it's like that candy pink brightness isn't it you get like cassie's character is kind of like this weird like her appearance she's like this weird mix between kind of like lolita and harley quinn there's like a weird aesthetic going on which again i felt was deliberate but maybe it might be just messy I don't know for me my reading of it was that it was completely purposeful because Mm -hmm. it does sort of take those tropes that level of expectation that you have about that particular character Mm -hmm. why someone might want to reclaim that why Mm -hmm. someone might want to play around with that and it worked for me Mm -hmm. it really did work for me and I very much enjoyed all of like the pop culture heavy you know elements in it like there's a very significant use of like a Paris Hilton song oh my god yes there truly is yeah and there's like Britney Spears songs and all of that and I think it's very interesting when you think about like our expectations about those people in particular that are so heavily coded in things like sexuality what you think about them as people you know like their legacies historically everything like that I think it definitely sort of like takes those elements and plays around with them but I can understand why someone might not particularly like that find it tiresome so I think it's I I really enjoyed it 
enjoyed is not perhaps the best way to describe it. Well, it's it's one of those films that you could say is done really well and that you enjoyed, but you might also never watch again. <laughs> yeah, I think it worked for me. It did it did really work for me, and I'm really interested actually to for more people we know to see it so that we can kind of engage in dialogue because actually I've I've largely encountered people that have had particularly like positive things to say about it but I am very interested to sort of see it from the other side you know I'm not adverse to actually that that reading on the film no I think there's a world of difference between I mean I I personally am quite surprised if people watch, say, Wonder Woman 1984 and say like, oh, but it was just like, you know, I actually thought it was really fun. I thought it was great. Like, I am quite baffled that people would be able to take that from it. But with a film like this, you can completely appreciate why someone will not enjoy it. Or yeah, the things that I thought quite were quite effective, I could also... I don't know, strangely also read as simultaneously ineffective. I do understand that point of view. Yeah, definitely. And I'd understand why someone would find it particularly uneasy. You know, I think it will be quite triggering and quite upsetting for for many people to watch. And that's completely, I completely understand that. But I just think it's a very interesting film. I think it's, you know, it's quite challenging in a lot of ways. Whether it 100% works with what it's doing, you know who's to say but i had a very you know good time watching it it definitely didn't let me down and i definitely leaned into the way it is marketed as one thing and isn't necessarily that i kind of liked that particular twist and it just sort of yeah i just i thought it worked and i'm i'm you know i was pretty impressed by it yeah i feel even though it's only january looking at what's coming up i could be completely wrong i think there's going to be a lot of really interesting and impressive film releases this year but i think this will be one of the ones that does sit in that category of kind of doing something quite different with the filmmaking and also with its topics so yeah as you say really interested to hear other people's takes and finally we've both been catching up with a new tv show that a lot of people have been talking about especially in the uk at the moment as it is currently airing on channel four so it's a sin is a five-part british television drama written and created by russell t davis who is best known i think for queer as folk and years and years the cast features ollie alexander of years and years the band uh, Amari Douglas, Callum Scott, Lydia West and Nathaniel Curtis among others as well as an appearance from Stephen Fry it follows a group, I just thought I'd add that in because he's quite a well known person it threw me, let's say Oof, what a surprise, uh, it follows a group of friends all in their late teens and their early 20s with the exception of a couple of characters who moved to London in 1981 and have their lives turned upside down by the AIDS crisis so the show begins in 1981 and moves, kind of runs across these five episodes until 1991. It premiered in the UK on the 22nd of January on Channel 4 and it's running week by week at the moment on Channel 4 but you can also catch up with all of it online in one go. It dropped in one go on 4OD. I believe it's coming to the States on HBO Max beginning 18th of February so again we'll try and keep this chat relatively spoiler free. I have watched the entire thing. I managed to pretty much binge it, to be honest. Um, And you're most of the way there now, halfway there. I am indeed. I have watched three episodes so far. Lovely. So three out of five, you're pretty much there. I think a lot of people who haven't seen this already will obviously understand what this this TV show is going to be about. But we'll get as I say, we'll try and keep it relatively spoiler free for you and for everyone else. 
firstly, before we kind of go into what we felt about this show, I guess it's interesting to acknowledge that it's, I would say it's quite unusual to have this story told from a British perspective. Mm. I think both of us had agreed that a lot of our reference points and knowledge of HIV and AIDS and the the AIDS crisis in particular around this time has a very American context. So New York, San Francisco, the Reagan administration, all of those things. That's pretty much where a lot of my information and understanding of this time comes from. And bar that, I mean, I guess the only other reference point I have for it in pop culture is the French film 120 Beats Per Minute, which we've reviewed before. But yeah, apart from that, it's it, it's been a, a very Americanized thing, I think, for us. So this is quite, there might be other things that have obviously aired beforehand that I haven't watched. But this is the first thing that I've seen personally that tells this from the perspective of characters living in London. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you found this show so far? So it's really interesting that you mentioned how so much of our awareness of the AIDS epidemic is extremely rooted in Mm. US-based culture, whether that's books, film, artwork, TV shows. I think there are two really key parts about this i think it's just because obviously it has origins in Mm -hmm. the united states so san francisco and new york in particular you mentioned there were two obviously kind of big focal points for it within the u.s i also think the thing that's really interesting for us the age that we are is that in the uk when we were at high school we were in education were under section 28 Mm -hmm. section 28 i think is really integral to understanding why so much of our awareness of things like lgbt relationships and things like the aids crisis were impacted because Mm -hmm. section 28 if you're not someone that is from the uk it was a law that was passed in 1988 by the conservative government so 1988 is the year i was born but it means that it stopped councils and schools promoting the teaching of the acceptability of homosexuality mm-hmm. as a family relationship. So basically it just banned schools from talking about anything to do with gay culture, gay That's not the nuclear family, April. No. It wasn't the nuclear family I'd heard about. Right. And so this was in May 1988 and then it was abolished, I believe, and repealed in 2003. Which is a long time. <laughs> a really long time. I left high school in 2004. So that means for the entirety of my high school experience, Mm -hmm. when we had things like sex education, gay relationships were not mentioned whatsoever. We We were preached the importance of safe sex and all of that, but the nuances and understanding of like lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, anything like that was completely wiped out from our education. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why, you know, watching It's a Sin has been a really interesting experience for me specifically because I think it reminded me quite a lot of like when I was at school and you would talk about things like AIDS in the in the playground. Mm-hmm. And so much of that was based on like misunderstanding, things you yeah. just heard from older people. And I think that is you know it's been really interesting to watch it's a sin to sort of actually find the locus of that to see mm-hmm. where that originated mm-hmm. the other thing it's you mentioned russell t davis of course the creator of the show queer as folk came out in 1999 right so i i did not watch queer as folk when it came out because i would have been 11 but i i remember watching it a few years later and like it absolutely blowing my mind because 
you just didn't hear this stuff talked about. You just no. didn't, you know, unless you sort of knew someone that perhaps was, was gay or had family members or anything like that. It just for that to be on television and for it to basically like show you what life is like, you know, so it's a series that's set and focuses on the lives of three gay men living in Manchester around Canal Street, which is where there's like a very vibrant gay scene. And it just blew my mind. And I remember being like, oh my God, like this is stuff's happening. And these people are like doing all this and having this amazing time. And it's really funny to think about Queer as Folk being quite a trailblazing TV show in, at the end of the 90s, when you're actually really coming out of the AIDS epidemic mm-hmm. in the UK and to watch it's a sin. So going into it, I think that Queer as Folk is probably like my sole reference point on British yeah. television. Mm-hmm. In in terms of like you know seminal gay culture at the time so and i think it's well it's been really interesting so obviously i'm only three episodes into it's a sim but it's been really interesting so far actually to have that unique british perspective on it because mm-hmm. obviously it was happening here it was just as like virulent and upsetting and destructive here as it was in the united states but oh, I yeah just know, absolutely i know so little about the impact of it within the United Kingdom on, you know, the many queer communities across the UK. So it's mm. been really interesting to have that sort of different perspective and actually think about like, well, I've read all these books and watched all these films and, you know, like I've been to like AIDS memorials in U- in New York and I've been to places in San Francisco, but I just know so little about what was happening in my own country at that time. So I think it's really important in that sense, not only for people our age who basically grew up not having any real understanding of it but also Mm -hmm. for younger generations that makes me sound like 5,000 years old but I do think there is like a real lack of actual probable understanding and one thing I found very interesting is to see quite a lot of like younger people actually actively going out and kind of you know saying like oh I had no idea about this it's been really interesting I'm going to read into xyz you know and and to see a lot of the signposting that's happened thereafter to say like oh "Oh, if you've enjoyed it's a sin here's some information about like what was really happening because obviously this is so this is very much rooted in Russell T Davis's own experiences of him and his friends at that particular time but it's also like you know there are fictional elements in it and I think it's really interesting actually to sort of see a lot of the discussion that's come out of this because I think it's a really good focal point and a jumping off point. I think so as well I spoke to my mum about it recently because she asked if she should watch it and then she also freely admitted that as an adult at you know someone who was an adult at this time she probably doesn't know much more than us because it it was you know is very much seen as a problem faced by a particular group of people so whether it was necessary for her to hear about it or you know it wasn't talked about in her circles as much because it didn't it didn't affect the people that she was as many of the people that she was spending time with yeah definitely and I think that I don't know I've just found the first three episodes of it have been particularly powerful I do like that you kind of get to know the group of people in the first episode you see how the kind of the five key people come together so you've got Ollie Alexander who plays Richie you've got um, Amari Douglas who plays Roscoe you've got Callum Scott Howes who plays Colin you've got Lydia West who plays Jill and then you've got Nathaniel Curtis who plays Ash and they come together and end up living in this flat in London together so it's really nice to sort of see them come together and how their friendships evolve and then as each episode progresses there's a different time jump and sort of you you know you see how their lives are evolving while also seeing how the impact of HIV and AIDS is sort of affecting their lives and I think Mm -hmm. it's very the narrative structure of it in that sense I think is very very interesting because you see immediately how it's 
impacting them, how their attitudes towards it are changing. But then you have like the wider societal impact of it. Mm -hmm. So as, you know, more information is learnt about it, as you see like grassroots movements to make people aware of it, to get people within the community to kind of prepare and make adjustments to make sure they're all safe and everything like that. And I think it's it's just very sensitively handled. And I just, it's funny, it's, we're only like a month into the start of this year, but it's already like one of the best pieces of television I've watched in a long while, I think. And I'm really excited to watch the final few episodes because I just think it's like, I, I hate saying like, oh, it's really important television because that makes it sound like it's really worthy and a bit like, you know, you, someone stamping their fist on the table mm. saying like, you must watch this. But I do think it's very important. And I think, you know, all credit to Russell T Davis to get to a point where he's able to honour so many people that I'm sure that he has known and has lost and how, you know, have an acknowledgement that this did happen. And I think that's just, that's, that's huge. Absolutely. As you say, and the characterization is particularly strong, the relationships between these young men and women and the fact that it does show that AIDS affected all of these people and affected them regardless of their background or their ethnicity or their level of sexual activity. They're all coming from very different places and having very different relationships and that, you know, it doesn't it, it doesn't matter where you're from or who you are. It can still affect you in just a devastating way. I think there's a lot of talk about Jill and her character that's been played by Lydia Baxter um, and her supportive role within the lives of these young men in particular because she's the grounding I don't know she's one of the central forces in this friendship group because she supports all of them and grounds them and is always there for them maybe sometimes at the expense of her own character so I don't Mm. think we necessarily see a lot of her own backstory for ourselves um so we don't know much about her own life but it you know she's an interesting placement in terms of sort of representing those individuals who were there to support others and I've seen quite a lot of talk on Twitter from people gay men in particular who have spoken about the you know the kind of Jill that they've had in their life or the Jill that they wish they'd had in their life and yeah I also the only other thing I'd add um, is that I find it really interesting to watch this at a time when we are faced with global pandemic Mm. and how the response to that global pandemic contrasts with the response to the AIDS epidemic and I just I, I find it particularly funny that their well our government in in the UK has not handled this pandemic well at all and there have been a lot of people defending the actions of our government or the lack of action from our government saying you know the government's never faced anything like this before you know they've never had to deal with this before so you can't blame them for being unprepared and this show in particular is one of many examples that just shows that that's not true like people are experiencing these you know these things happen a lot and have happened frequent times in our lifetime and you know our government in particular just never seem prepared or you know they don't care about it at at the end of the day I think this show does highlight the fact that AIDS uh, at that time was seen as an illness affecting you know quote American gay men so Mm. the the reaction was a. I mean, it only affects gay men. So you know, it's a gay. And initially, they they said it was you know a gay cancer. They said, well, only gay men get it. So I don't care. It doesn't bother me. And also, it was seen as an American thing, aka you know, is is on an, in another country. Why does it affect you know? No one was talking about it that much because it felt like something distant that didn't directly affect them. You know, I don't want to make this about this current context, but I do think there are some really interesting parallels in terms of that reaction and also this bringing back this 
bringing a TV show out that kind of highlights this period in history and in Britain in particular and generating conversation about it. You, there are just some really uncanny parallels. Yeah, I think you're completely right. It's very jarring, actually, to watch at the moment. I found elements of it quite tough but in that sense. I mean, obviously, it's a tough watch anyway, but there were things like where Jill goes to visit one character and mm. is like, you know, gloving up and don't come near me and all of that stuff. And there's the isolation element of it, which, you know, of, happened. People were put into rooms on their own and not treated as they should have been because mm. people were scared or didn't understand. Initially, it was perceived, AIDS was perceived to only affect, you know, extremely marginalised people within society. There was, you know, initially it was referred to as 4-H because it seemed to only affect heroin users, homosexuals, haemophiliacs and Haitians. And those are, you know, types of people within communities that like mm. actually the government doesn't care about because they consider them to be like lesser than and marginalized so and we and we had this uh, you know we had this with covid where yeah. you know the experts were coming out and saying this is particularly affecting black people and they are more at risk and you know black people on the front line are going to be really negatively affected by this illness and you know the government are slow to act again because again it's not them they don't care yeah, and I just, it's... I just found those parallels. You know, there's so much going on with this show, but it that was one of the things that made me think a lot about actually was how. Well, it's hard to, it's hard to not watch this and actually think about the fact that this was all happening under a conservative government at the time. So the parallels are inevitably there. And one thing I just wanted to mention, actually, just going back to Russell T Davis in particular, I do mm. one of the things I'd noted down was that like it's very interesting because at the time that Queer as Folk came out, it was like very trailblazing for its representation of gay relations. Relationships, but one of the really big criticisms Davis received at the time was his decision to completely not acknowledge AIDS at all in mm-hmm. the program. So mm-hmm. it was very good in that it tackled, you know, drug abuse, underage sex, homophobia in the workplace, all mm-hmm. of these sort of like key things. But it, AIDS was like very much absent across its two seasons. And that's something that's come up for him time and time again when people mm-hmm. get him to talk about the show. And I think that that's definitely sat with him and it's very interesting to sort of see it's a sin as this like interesting comparison to yeah. for him to have been one of the people that was extremely trailblazing in getting on these types of relationships and communities on screen mm-hmm. to then now go back and actually say well like this is what was going on at this mm-hmm. particular time and these are the issues that were affecting it it just feels like a very interesting kind of companion piece and mm-hmm. um i just you know like i said i think it's a very very important piece of television and, and it's so well executed i think and i'm really interested to see the last two episodes and I really hope that it does trigger people to sort of go out and, and you know, read more widely um, because that's something definitely that I'll be doing myself. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, it's um, it's a great way of, or a gateway, uh, an introduction for some people to um, the history of this this particular disease and what was happening at that time. But also um, there's been lots of really great conversations about, you know, modern preventative treatments, PrEP and ART medicines, which, you know, mean people can with HIV can live long, happy lives. So there's been a lot of positives that's come out of this and a lot of myth busting as well on social media in particular. And as you mentioned before, you know, a lot of people may be watching this show, you know, no, not knowing much themselves because of, you know, when they went to school or an you know lots of different reasons it's one of those tv shows that you really connect with and enjoy because the characters are so lovable and at the same time it just sits with you because it's so devastating and it's such an important thing to talk about 
So after all of that, when it came to thinking about a main topic, one thing that we eventually did settle upon was things that we are looking forward to in 2021 on the film front. Um, I like that I've kept in my notes where you'd written like things we're looking forward to in 2021 other than hugging each other. That would be nice, wouldn't it? That's a nice thing that I'd like to achieve once this year. My other thing I would like to do in 2021 is go to Wagamama. But... Oh, yeah, I don't think I've been. Have I been to Wagamama since? I'm at the year mark now. Oh, Christ. I don't know when the last time I went. I assume I went in early 2020, but I can't remember. Could be Takeout's just not the same. I'm not so... doing it. I'm not doing a takeout Wagamama. No. Never, never doing it. So, yes, uh, films we are looking forward to in 2021. Obviously, we will add the caveat to this in that whether it remains to be seen whether many of these things will be released this year and whether we'll get to encounter them. But, you know, it's nice to be optimistic and hope that at some stage we'll get to see some films that we've been looking forward to for a while. Yeah, I think I do vaguely recall having this conversation a year ago and yeah. um, many of the films that we were looking forward to <laughs> a year ago are still in my list for things yeah, that I'm that. looking forward to in 2021 because they haven't happened yet. Hey-ho, good to be optimistic though. Grand, yes. Nice to have something to look forward to. When... Lovely, truly lovely. So I'm going to let you go first, mostly because I think that we will have some overlap. Yes. But I am intrigued to see what you're most looking forward to, specifically on the film front. So if you would like to begin, we will keep it brief. Yes. Because we obviously have not seen these films, um, so we can't comment any further. But... <laughs> can't comment. Some of them don't even have trailers, guys. So, I mean, who even knows what to expect? I've tried to do them chronologically. I chose 10. Oh, you're so good. I know. There are, there are more which is lovely um i have chosen 10 i have done them chronologically and earlier on i realized that they were all being bunched up towards the end of the year which is when most of the films are being released so for that reason i also purposefully tried to choose a couple that are coming out soon so probably aren't going to be at the cinema but i tried to just do a bit of a chronological spread so that we're not just thinking fuck we've got nothing to enjoy until june july time which was quite a disappointing, scary prospect. Yeah, can I just say that that's funny that you took that approach because I specifically didn't look up the release dates of any of mine because I was moderately concerned it would depress me. Well, spoiler, they're mostly at the end of the year. That's fine though. Nice to have something on the horizon. Right, here are two that are happening in the next six months that we can look forward to. Okay, so I've gone. One that's coming out very soon, in fact, will be out by the time this podcast comes out. Great. Um, Is... Jesus and the Black Messiah. Oh, of course. This is a biopic slash... Is it a biopic biographical film directed by Shaka King and produced by Ryan Coogler? So this film is... It details the betrayal of Fred Hampton, who was the chairman of the Black Panther Party in the late 60s, at the hands of FBI informant William O'Neill. It's scheduled to premiere at Sundance. I don't think it happened yet because I haven't seen any early conversations about it or anything like that. But it is due out on the 1st of February, which in our recording time, real time is tomorrow. Don't know how it's coming out over here in the UK though. Um, mostly looking forward to this for its two male leads. So yes. Daniel Kalua as Fred Hampton, amazing, and Lakeith Stanfield as William O'Neill. Um, it also has Jesse Plemons in it, which is great. Uh, Jesse Plemons as an unlikable cop interesting because i i think he's mostly in quite likable roles i would argue so yeah. i'm quite looking forward to this for the the two um lead stars in particular which is why i selected it also it's coming out this month so you know we don't have to wait forever which is lovely 
Um, a second film that's completely different that is coming out this month as well on Netflix on the 19th of February is a film called I Care A Lot, which is a black comedy thriller from Jay Blakeson. It stars Rosamund Pike. Is it Diana Weist or West? It's got an eye in it. Diane Weist. Weist. Diane Weist. There you go. Weist. Weist. Diane Weist. Peter Dinklage, um, Isa Gonzalez again, and Chris Messina, lovely. Um, and this is, uh, as I said, it's going to be a Netflix drop. It had its world premiere at Toronto back in September 2020. How funny that these films then have ages <laughs> to wait. And it's about a woman who makes her living stealing from the elderly by deceiving judges into appointing her as their legal guardian. Then she lands in hot water when her latest victim turns out to have ties to a powerful gangster. So it's one of those films where you have a lead protagonist who is an absolute evil shit, but you sort of are rooting for them anyway anyway because you enjoy watching them so I think that's kind of why I'm looking forward to it is Rosamund Pike in particular and her performance has the look and feel of a film that I will really have fun with and February is really dreary so I need something to look forward to this month in particular I've then um, skipped all the way through to June. I actually worry quite a lot that there's nothing that I'm dying to see between March and June but we'll see how things go so 30th of June, uh, we've definitely spoken about this before, is the release of Zola, which is another biographical film, but it's kind of more of a comedy drama this time, directed by Janexa Bravo. So it stars Taylor Page, Riley Keough, Nicholas Braun, Ariel Stachel and Coleman Domingo. And it's based on that very, very famous Twitter thread in which Zola meets a sex worker named Stephanie at a restaurant um, and the two immediately bond and they have this insane evening of just drama at a bunch of Florida strip clubs and it's all it just goes absolutely insane so it's based on a true well quite quite true story that this um person Zola had posted on Twitter many moons ago this also I think came out at Sundance last year it did the year before no it was 2020 it was right at the start of the year right at the start I mean it's had very strong reviews so we're I think we're both really looking forward to it actually later in July there is a film that we have both discussed numerous times and I've been waiting for for like two years, something really annoying. So on the 30th of July, we finally are supposed to get The Green Knight, which is probably the most to me film of 2021, I think. Directed by David Lowry, who also directed A Ghost Story and The Old Man and the Gun. Um, stars Dev Patel, Alicia Vikander, I think it Vikander. is. Vikander. Vikander. Why can't I do names? I don't know. Alicia Vikander, Joel Edgerton, uh, Sarita Chowdhury, Sean Harris, Kate Dickey, Barry Keehan and Ralph Innocent. Um, and it's based on the poem of Sir Gwaine and the Green Knight, which I don't really know that much about. Did you not do it at school? No, I never had to do Sir Gwaine and the Green Knight. As you can probably tell, it's this epic fantasy based on Arthurian legend and it involves uh, a gigantic emerald-skinned stranger. It's got ghosts, giants, thieves, schemers, all of these crazy things. The trailer itself is super unnerving. It's got some really great effective shots and the score is really creepy. Um, I really like that it's got Kate Dickey playing the queen in it and also Ralph Innocent, who are both, they, they play Thomason's parents in The Witch, 
So they're both in this, which is really interesting. It really feels like this film is just taking a page from Robert Eggers' book. So mm-hmm. we'll see um, what happens with it. But it's something that I was dying to see last year. And we got as far as having um, a nice poster of it up outside our local picture house cinema. And then, of course, it just disappeared again. And will hopefully come out on the 30th of July. Repeating myself again with another film I'm really looking forward to that we have discussed the trailer for before, I believe. 27th of August, we will hopefully finally get Nia DaCosta's Candyman. So directed by Nia DaCosta, written by Jordan Peele and produced by Jordan Peele. So I think we really get the best of both worlds here. We've got a young black female director with Jordan Peele lending a hand with the writing and producing. So I'm really excited for this. It's been called a spiritual sequel to uh, the 1992 film Candyman. It's going to star Yahar Abdul-Mateen II, Tiona Paris, Nathan Stewart Jarrett and Coleman Domingo again, along with Tony Todd and Vanessa Estelle Williams, who are reprising their roles uh, from the original film. So this version of The Candyman is present day. It's a decade after the last Cabrini Towers were torn down. And we've got Anthony and his partner moving into a loft in gentrified Cabrini. So the area um, where the original Candyman film took place in Chicago is now this gentrified neighbourhood. And one of the interesting things about this film is that you've got the victim from the original film poised to become the villain. The Candyman is trying to get him to take on his role. And there's also Ian Cooper, who's the creative director of Jordan Peele's production company, said that this reboot is quite self-aware in addressing toxic fandom. So he says what we're trying to do with Candyman is be both mischievous in how we address the relationship to the first film, but also very satisfying. So that's something else that I'm quite looking forward to about this film. And it also, yeah, as I say, it looks like Tony Todd is set to star and he's also giving his blessing. The the trailer was really effective, had that amazing version of Destiny's Child, Say My Name. Just, yeah, can't wait. Wish it had been out in Halloween, on Halloween or around Halloween as it had been scheduled to be originally, but we're getting a weird summer August release instead. Fine. I'm skipping through to October and a really obvious one. We may, in fact, finally get June on the 1st of October. Directed by Denis Villeneuve. Uh, it's the first of a planned two-part adaptation of the 1965 novel of the same name by Frank Herbert, which we have spoken about before because we had a great trailer drop. This film will is supposed to roughly cover the first half of that book. We've got an ensemble cast including Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, Stellan Skarsgård, Dave Bautista, Stephen McKinley, Henderson, Zendaya, David... Ooh, no. Who isn't in this film? Well, just pretty much everyone you can think of. Jason Momoa, Javier Bardem, everyone is in this film. You've got huge set pieces, you've got a huge cast, you've got a really complex book that has never worked as a film before and that I haven't even tried to read you've got Hans Zimmer doing the score Denis Villeneuve in you know he's great at world building in particular so Blade Runner um, 2049 and Arrival both really kind of knocked it out of the park in terms of world building so it's a long way away in October and it's one of the very big blockbuster films that I'm looking forward to most unsurprisingly I've also listed The Many Saints of Newark, which will be out on the 22nd of October. There's actually two films coming out on that date, which will be interesting. Maybe I'll back-to-back them if I'm allowed in the cinema. So The Many Saints of Newark is crime drama directed by Alan Taylor, who is he's a TV and film director. I think he's best known for his work on a lot of TV shows. So he's worked on Lost, West Wing, Six Feet Under, Sex and the City, Sopranos, Game of Thrones... 
Boardwalk Empire, Deadwood, Mad Men, basically all the real biggies. And it's written by David Chase and Lawrence Connor as a prequel to Chase's series, The Sopranos. So I've been re-watching The Sopranos. I'm still currently re-watching The Sopranos. I'm on season three and I really, really love it. And I'm just really interested to see what they do with this as a prequel. It's set in the 60s and 70s in Newark, New Jersey, and it's using uh, the 1967 riots in the city as a backdrop for the tensions between the Italian-American and African-American communities. And it's also a look at the formative years of New Jersey gangster Tony Soprano. And all eyes for this are obviously on Michael Gandolfini, who is playing a young Tony Soprano, who was, of course, originally played in the series by his dad, and yeah, just really, really looking forward to it. It's got a really interesting cast. We've got John Bernthal in there as well. Love uh, I love that you've got Ray Liotta. Like you couldn't have a gangster anything without Ray Liotta. I feel like Liotta it's in. like the law that he has to be in it. Yeah, me too. It's it's funny. But uh, yeah, there's been, we haven't had much so far. We haven't had any kind of trailer. We've just seen a first look of um, Michael Gandolfini as Tony Soprano. Um, and he does he does look a lot like his father in a lot of ways. So it will be really interesting to see him in it. I hope they do a good job. Interesting fi- time to bring out this film. So we'll see. Same day, it's the 22nd of October. We're also hopefully finally getting Last Night in Soho, which is directed by Edgar Wright. Uh, we've talked about Edgar Wright a lot on this podcast because we really love him. Just love him so much. Just love him so much. He's the best. So it's a film starring Anya Taylor-Joy, Thomasin McKenzie, Matt Smith, Diana Rigg and Terence Stamp. Uh, and it follows a young girl who's passionate about film design who mysteriously enters the 1960s where she encounters her idol, a dazzling wannabe singer. But 60s London is not what it seems and time seems to fall apart with shady consequences. I think Edgar Wright said that this is going to be quite different to his other films. So it's very still kind of in the horror genre, but it's more of a slow burn that gets increasingly more intense. And he's made reference to kind of it being more akin to psychological horrors of the 60s and 70s. So kind of don't look now, Rosemary's Baby, that have something of a an operatic nature is what he said. So yeah. that has just got me hooked. I mean, apart from Matt Smith, which I could, I mean, I could really take or leave Matt Smith. I'd forgotten he was in this actually until I was doing my own research. I was like, oh, for God's oh, sake. Christ. Then. But I do like Thomas and Mackenzie. So really interesting yeah, can't wait to see how this is, especially if it's taking a slightly different tone. And then I've I've added two more. So one, we really don't have a lot of information about yet, but Nightmare Alley, I don't know if you've heard a lot about this. So it's, Oh, the Del Toro. Yes. So this is Del Toro's new film due to come out on the 3rd of December. So it's still very early days. It's a psychological thriller and it's based on the novel of the same name by William Lindsay Gresham. It's got a big cast. So it stars Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchard, Willem Dafoe, Tony Collette, Richard Jenkins, Ron Perlman and Rooney Mara. So big cast. And the book, I believe there's an already a film version of this. So this is the next film version. And the premise is an ambitious carny, played by Bradley Cooper, great, with a talent for manipulating people with a few well-chosen words, hooks up with a female psychiatrist, played by Blanchett, who is even more dangerous than he is. Um, So from what I read, it said that the book is a, quote, study of the lowest depths of showbiz and its sleazy inhabitants, the dark shadowy world of a second-rate carnival filled with hustlers, scheming grifters and Machiavellian femme fatales. So I'm, this is, sounds like it's going to be quite a different thing for Del Toro. 
So I'm really looking forward to it because of the director, because of the cast. I just think it sounds really interesting. And I can imagine a kind of second-rate carnival world just getting a really strange treatment from Del Toro. Yeah, definitely. It could work really well. It could also be rubbish, but we'll see. I'm looking forward to him doing something quite different to what he's released in recent years. And then the only the other one that I'm going to mention, which we've talked about before, and which doesn't even have a release date, so might not even be in 2021, so I'm cheating, but I just want to say once more that I really want The Northman to come out this year. I could really do with that. Robert Eggers, historical thriller, co-written by Sean, who is a poet and a novelist that I really like. And it's a Viking revenge saga set in Iceland at the turn of the 10th century. And this has like the best cast of all. So we've got Alex Skarsgård, Nicole Kidman, Anya Taylor-Joy, Willem Dafoe, Ethan Hawke, Bjork, Kate Dickey, Ralph Ineson. So like a whole family affair some really strong cast members and lots of regulars that Robert Eggers really enjoys working with. Production has wrapped already, so I'm really hoping that means that it will come out at the later end of this year. I would really, really like that. It would give me something to look forward to. There are a bunch of others. I only chose 10, but hopefully that leads into you being able to talk about some more films that you're looking forward to. Tell me some that you want to watch, April, and let's feel upbeat about something. So... What's quite funny is that I'd written a list of 15 mm-hmm. and five of those you've already mentioned. Ooh, so it worked. does neatly leave me with 10. Brilliant. I had a few others to mention and I feel like the others I've got on that list are going to be the ones that are on your list. So I think this will come together quite well. What's really funny is that like as you were talking through that, I was like slowly editing my notes, just being like, if you take all of my films, I'm going to be like so pissed off because I'll just have like three things. Um, okay, so I think that just casting an eye over my 10, they are like the extremely me 10, actually this is quite funny so that this works quite well okay so the 10 that i am greatly anticipating again whether they'll come out this year who knows but the first one (laughs) is the card counter directed by paul schroeder he who did first reformed one of my favorite films though but i never want to watch ever again no the card counter stars oscar isaac and william defoe and the synopsis is as follows tell just wants to play cards his spartan existence on the casino trail is shattered when he's approached by kirk a vulnerable and angry young man seeking help to execute his plan for revenge on a military colonel. Tell sees a chance at redemption through his relationship with Kirk, but keeping Kirk on the straight and narrow proves impossible, dragging Tell back into the darkness of his past. This is fairly notable because it was disrupted quite considerably by coronavirus at the start of last year. Schrader has now finished it. Paul Schrader is quite funny to talk about, really, because he likes to sound off on Facebook like a total dad. If you've got any time to look into that, then I greatly encourage you to do so, because he does say some very strange things. But I'm really looking forward to this, because it's a director who I really, obviously, very enjoy, even though he's got quite a spotty output, but it also stars Oscar Isaac, who I absolutely adore, and, of course, William Dafoe, who we I've talked about previously. So I would be very grateful to see that this year. Something else I'm obviously very pumped for is Don't Look Up, which is directed by Adam McKay. a lot of adam mckay discussion this week re stocks and shares the cast for this is like absolutely batshit so i've just gone for some like standout people rather than listing everything like adam mckay has a tendency to do he's very good at packing his films full of notable faces so obviously the vice and big short in particular so people starring in don't look up are jennifer lawrence leonardo dicaprio meryl streep timothy chalamet ariana grande jonah hill 
Chris Evans, Kate Blanchett. I'll stop there because I could go on forever. The concept of this film does baffle me slightly, but I, because it's Adam McKay, I put a lot of trust in him and I think it'll be yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about the concept of this film, but go on. It's uh, two low-level astronomers, upon discovering that a meteor will strike the Earth in six months, go on a media tour to try and warn the world, but find an unreceptive and unbelieving populace. So Adam McKay does like to take like current affairs and kind of look at them through a different lens. And I think it'll be very interesting to see how he approaches the concept of what essentially is climate change um, and, you know, global warming and all of that. I, I have no doubt that it'll be amazing. He does get some really great performances out of people, so I'm pretty pumped to see that this is going to be appearing on netflix i believe and there was a mm. brief teaser for it in netflix's grand unveiling of what's coming to the platform soon so i'm on the lookout for that something else which has just come out of sundance actually i think some of the first reviews have just come online but it's on the count of three which is directed by jared carmichael um it stars himself and christopher abbott christopher abbott he of possessor and charlie from girls and it's about two friends and it involves kind of like a, a suicide attempt and a, a suicide pact and some unfinished business. Um, it looks really interesting. It's Jared Carmichael's directorial debut, I believe. And also Christopher Abbott has some really cool blonde hair in it. So really, that's all you have to do, really, to get me to turn up to a film. He does have like Robert Pattinson in Good Time Energy, which is what I think I was pumped for, to be honest. So looking forward to seeing that at some stage. The Tragedy of Macbeth, directed by Joel Cohen not a Cohen brothers, no Ethan this time around, is basically just a modern retelling of the Shakespeare classic, but starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand, Brendan Gleeson, amongst others. I absolutely adore Denzel, and the idea of Denzel doing Shakespeare on screen gets me extremely pumped so i'm very much looking forward to seeing that i'm fairly over shakespeare adaptations but yeah i am very interested to see denzel do it um i know that he's done it on stage many many times so it's kind of cool that he's going to get to do it on screen mm. something you didn't mention it's debatable whether it'll come out this year but i'm going to mention it anyway is don't worry darling yes well do you know what i i kind of chose i was like I'm either going to mention The Northman or Don't Worry Darling. <laughs> and I was trying to work out. I was like, The Northman's probably more likely to come out this year. But just because it's wrapped. Don't Worry Darling is going to be directed by Livia Wilde. I do know that I think production for it has been halted at the moment because I think in LA there are different back. sanctions. Are they back now? They're back. Not that I keep tabs on this, but they're back. Understandably so, given who it stars and yes. all of the recent furore regarding Harry and Olivia, which we did not mention, but is a thing that is happening. So it stars Florence Pugh, Harry Styles, Chris Pine, amongst others. It's about a housewife living in a utopian community in California desert, and she uncovers a disturbing truth about her seemingly perfect life. I'm really looking forward to seeing this. Um, the cast is obviously amazing. So excited. Period piece, loved book smart, really interested to see what Olivia Wilde does with this. Many of our faves are in this so i don't think it will necessarily come out this year it might be the tail end of it but i'm just going to mention it anyway oh so excited i had so many to be honest there were about 10 tbcs i had <laughs> which were like we knew they're in the works but who knows when they're going to come out who knows something i do think will probably come out this year because of who it's directed by and his tendency to just edit very quickly and get things produced is No Sudden Moves um, directed by Steven Soderbergh I'm pretty pumped for this mm. because it looks like it's a return to the heist crime avenue for Steven Soderbergh obviously he directed Ocean's Eleven one of my favourite films in the entire world so I'm very interested to see this it stars Don Cheadle John Hamm Benicio Del Toro David Harbour Julia Fox amongst others Steven Soderbergh is obviously very much like Adam McKay in that he gets a lot of great people to be in his films even if they do small performances 
says the synopsis for this is um, in Detroit in the 1950s, a trio of criminals carry out home invasion only to wonder if they've been double crossed when the job goes sideways. I'm really looking forward to this. I think it will be brilliant. Mm. Again, a period piece, not something I think that Steven Soderbergh has ever done or at least done recently. So that will be very interesting. And I reunites him with Don Cheadle, who obviously put an extremely hammy performance in Ocean's (laughs) Eleven. But has many of my favourites, so I'm very much looking forward to seeing that. I think there were some like on-set paparazzi photos that came out of that last year, and I'm just hyped. Another film that I, again, don't necessarily know if it's going to come out. I know that I think it's finished production, or is at least towards the tail end of it, is Come On, Come On, which is directed by Mike Mills. It's going to star Joaquin Phoenix, Gabby Hoffman, Yubuki Young-White. Um, it's about a documentary filmmaker whose latest project involves gifted children, and he bonds with his smart yet sensitive nephew whose father struggles with bipolar disorder and is in the grips of a manic episode. Mike Mills is someone whose work I really, really enjoy. He has, of course, directed 20th Century Women, Beginners. He also did the uh, accompanying film to coincide with the last national record. And I think he's very good at unpacking like very sensitive themes in like a very interesting way beginners in particular sort of tackles those and is also very influenced by his own life so i'm really intrigued with this one i didn't necessarily it wasn't something i was hugely familiar with actually until i did some research into what was coming out this year so Mm. i'm very much looking forward to that something i think it is debatable whether it'll come out this year it was supposed to come out last year but i wonder if they've delayed it so it goes into cinemas it's annette which is directed by leos carax i think we talked about this last year um stars adam driver and marion cotillard it's completely soundtracked by sparks songs it's about a stand-up comedian and his opera singer wife and their two-year-old daughter who has a surprising gift i hope this does come out soon i think it was supposed to play at film festivals last year and was parked it mm. is completely wrapped and i think finished and ready to go so i'm hoping that that does appear because i really like the music of sparks and i obviously love adam driver and i'm really intrigued by leos Carax's work so i think that'll be something to look forward to and then my final two one of them is actually coming out fairly soon um so i put it in there just because i wanted to reference it it's of course minari Mm, which is already out in the states we're just basically sitting in limbo waiting for this i can't wait to see it i think i'm really looking forward to seeing that standout performance from steven yun and i just yeah i think it's coming out here next month i've got a date for it i think it is february a date for it. it is february it's definitely february so that's something we definitely know is coming out fairly soon the my final one which is like extremely the most me thing to potentially be happening this year is the as untitled Paul Thomas Anderson project, which was when it was in production, it was called Soggy Bottom. If he calls it Soggy Bottom, like I will absolutely die. What are we going to do? What do we do with him if he calls it Soggy Bottom? I would follow him into the gates of hell. So April, I, mean, I can't have you telling people you love Soggy Bottom. It just can't happen. My favourite film of this year was Soggy Bottom. So it stars Bradley Cooper, Benny Safdie, Alana Haim and Cooper Hoffman. The latter is significant because it's Philip Seymour Hoffman's film. And if you know anything about Paul Thomas Anderson, you'll know that he collaborated many, many times with Philip Seymour Hoffman. So intrigued by that casting. It's set in the 1970s in San Bernardino Valley. And the film follows a high school student who's also a successful child actor. Paul Thomas Anderson has done many films that have been set in San Bernardino Valley. It's where he grew up. So I'm very intrigued by this because it feels like he's going back to a similar theme for most of his films apart from Phantom Thread Mm. which is like a significant complete left turn a little bit so I don't know it's debatable whether it's going to come out this year but it's the one thing from this list I made that I'm like 
just probably can't wait for can't wait for so yeah that's my list the only other thing i hadn't listed was the french dispatch but i don't know is that coming out this again year? i don't know if that is coming out this year where is it where's anderson release it please it would bring me such joy all these tbc things drive oh. me mad i i cannot be in a position where it's 2022 and i'm doing my roundup of films i'm looking forward to and i have to talk about fucking candy man again or june or just not doing it i'm already looking forward to like the end of the year and like when we do our like 2022 preview and we're like yeah i'm really looking forward to it and the list is just the same I'm just going to copy and paste it from this document. At least I won't have to do any prep work. No, of course not. So there we go. Have you got any others that you want to mention? To be honest, you've mentioned quite a few of them. Just a couple. Um, I'm quite, even though it's had a lot of discussion online and it's very Marmite, I am looking forward to Malcolm and Marie. So this is the Sam Levinson directed film on Netflix with Zendaya and John David Washington. I'm looking forward to watching it. I want to see what happens. I feel like I will have strong feelings either way. I look forward to discussing it. I'm now quite apprehensive, but I think it will be an interesting talking point. I've seen such a mix of reactions. I'm intrigued to see it. The only other two in particular, there's well, there's kind of three. They're all horror films, sorry. One is In the Earth, which was this secret Ben Wheatley project. Um, that no one knew he was filming during lockdown. Ben Wheatley obviously let everyone, probably including his parents, down with Rebecca. It was quite literally a stinker. But this um, new film, In the Earth, was premiered at Sundance and has had really good reviews. And people are describing it as a mix between Kill List and A Field of England and Annihilation, which I think sounds sick. Oh, sure. So I'm very much looking forward to that now because everyone's really bigged it up. So it better not be bad. I have um, I have seen a few Sundance reviews, um, which have been good, I think, so... I'm excited. Go. I hope it's a return to form. There's also a film called Censor, which is a British horror oh, film yes. directed by Prano Bailey Boyd, which just had its premiere at Sundance as well. And this is a film about a woman working as a film censor in the 80s who is shocked to discover a horror movie that recreates a traumatic incident from her childhood. So I think it's very much a homage to 80s video nasties. And it's had some really positive reviews. So I'm really looking forward to that as well. Uh, there's a couple of others like Antlers, which is a Del Toro produced film that we've been waiting for. When will for it be released? Um, it hasn't, you know, just doesn't seem to want to come out. Um, I'm even kind of looking forward to hopefully going to the cinema and seeing Halloween Kills. I would like to spend Halloween seeing a Halloween film in the cinema, even if I didn't love the first one. There's there's stuff I'm looking forward to like that, you know? I think being in lockdown for almost a year has really made me appreciate the small things. I think that, like... I'm if if and when we get out of lockdown and we can like, do stuff again. I think I'll just go and see anything. I'm even looking forward to forward to Fast Nine, Top Gun, Black Widow, all of that stuff. Like I just sign me up. I'm going to be like living there. I think going forward. If you pay for my ticket, I'll see those two. Sure, fine, good. We'll do it. I'm joking. I'll be so starved for the cinema. I'll just be begging people to make loads of noise behind me and eat fucking smelly crisps in my. Oh, can't wait for it. I look forward to the. Top Gun centric episode we will be doing at some point soon. If you've got any other films that you're looking forward to, let us know because we'd love to hear about them. Yes, please. <sighs> so, after all of that, what is your obsession of the week, please? Well, I'm going to opt for there's one non sexy obsession of the week, which is that I've just started rewatching Buffy again. That's pretty sexy. Hey. 
yes, it's true. Actually, there's many sexy people in it. Um, as a huge comfort rewatch for 2021, I didn't do it in 2020. It was one of the last things that I was holding on to. So, but I'm I'm fully into it now, January 2021, because I need it. Um, and that's bringing me just immense joy. But it does mean that mostly what I can think about during the day is having the opportunity to just go in. I, I like getting into bed and watching it in bed. So that's been something I've been doing uh, at five o'clock when my working day ends <laughs> as I watch an episode of Buffy in bed. And it's become something that's probably not healthy for me because I'm just lying around, but is also just greatly it's just bringing me a lot of joy. I love it. Those, And I've realised that those early episodes have some moments of absolute comedy genius that I don't remember. So I've just been absolutely guffawing at some of the stuff that's happened. Just great witty one-liners. And then also just a, a random obsession of the week or rather obsession of the day is I had quite a sexy dream about Sawyer from Lost last <laughs> night. So... <laughs> How have you kept that secret all day? I know, I did. I had a sexy dream about Sawyer from Lost. I can't really remember what happened other than there was a lot of water involved, who I assume we were on an island. Uh, and he had a daughter, which just seemed a bit awkward, but I definitely got to snog him. So that was great. Um, he had lovely hair. And that, so yeah, I've been thinking about that a bit today. That's been quite nice. Snogging, that's great, isn't it? Um, what is your obsession of the week? I really struggled actually because I was like I just have I've had like a real lack of enjoyment of anything. It's like I'm really. just not enjoying anything. <sighs> Everything has been a slog. Fine. Um, the one thing that I have found like quite nice comfort in over the last month or so is that I've been doing an unintentional, rapidly became intentional uh, Paul Thomas Anderson film rewatch. Mm. Um, we watched Phantom Thread on New Year's Day because it is. New Year's canon, of course. Yes. I hadn't seen it for a while, and that was lovely. And then afterwards, it made me kind of just think, like, oh, maybe I'll just rewatch all of Paul Thomas Anderson's films because they don't bring me a great deal of joy. Mm -hmm. So that's what I've just been doing with my weekends. Every Saturday for the last month, I've just been watching a, a Paul Thomas Anderson film, which has Wonderful. been great. I'm going backwards chronologically. Um, yesterday, I rewatched There Will Be Blood. Oh, that's great. That's very uplifting. Yeah, I just was really thinking about how absolutely handsome Daniel Day-Lewis is. Oh, so handsome. Like, Daniel Plainview in particular. It's a bit much. Very, very handsome. So, yeah, that was quite nice, just to really focus on how handsome Daniel Day-Lewis is. And also Paul Thomas Anderson. Fancy the pants off him, so... Yeah, I can see that, definitely. Great. So that's been quite nice. That's what I've been obsessing over, and that really has been, like, dragging me through the week. <laughs> because I know that I've got something to look forward to. Who knows what will happen when I get to the end of that, but I've got another month to worry about that. So it's fine. fine. We're getting into February. The days are getting lighter. We just need... We need to get through at least another five weeks, and we'll see how things are progressing. So you've got a bit of time. I've got some time. It's fine. So you can find us online. We're Twitter at The Thirst. You can subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts by searching for The Thirst. We're also on Spotify and Podbean as well by searching The Thirst. Um, we're on Instagram, The Thirst Pod. Our blog is thethirstpod.wordpress.com. And if you still use Facebook, probably shouldn't, but we are on there as well by searching for The Thirst Pod. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.